Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ahí va a llegar el gol del Arsenal Ophil. Marca Mesut Ophil. El centro para la Cacé. This is Arsecast Extra. Hello and welcome to another Arsecast Extra, as always, with James from Gun and Blog. James, goodly morning. Oh, it is. It is. It is a goodly morning. It is. It's a bit. Oh. It's a bittersweet morning, though, James, because obviously having beaten the champions, Mikel Arteta's work at Arsenal is now done. Yes. And we're on the lookout for a new manager. So, you know, with the, with the highs come the lows. That is true. We are the men who beat the men. As I saw, <laughs> as I saw on uh, someone say on Twitter, I forget who it was. Now we are the li- Arsenal, are the lineal champions of England, which I will take. Yeah, the kind of playground logic champions. We've beaten the champions, therefore we're better than them for sure. It was Squid Boy. Yes, right. I, I, it was Squid Boy. Shout out Squid Boy. But uh, yeah, I mean, thoroughly enjoyed last night. One of the funniest football matches I have ever seen. I have to agree with that. I thought for a while we were going to get absolutely hammered and then it just went it just went off the charts in terms of surrealism, bizarreness, mistakes. I mean mm. the 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 thing that I saw this morning which made me laugh a lot was Jurgen Klopp after the second goal and he's standing there with a look on his face that was almost identical to the look I had on my face as I was watching from my television just like what the fuck are they doing? How how has this happened? It was quite funny to see him. There's, a, I think, a gift doing the rounds of of Klopp just standing there, and he's just sort of open mouthed, looking aghast, but slightly yeah. bemused at 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 what he's seen. Because obviously, that is not the way Liverpool have played this season. Um, no, yeah. it, it it was just extraordinary. I mean, it was. I, I did find myself sort of openly laughing at points uh, in the game mm. just because such surreal things were happening. It, it, I actually at one point made a list of some of the funny things that happened that we might have forgotten. For example, okay. the the bit where fireworks went off during the game. What, what was that? What was <laughs> that? Know. It was some Arsenal fans who knew what was going to happen going an hour early. Or it was like, I don't know, Liverpool fans maybe celebrating, but it was strange. That was weird because I was at first I was thinking like, uh oh, who got in the ground with a machine gun? Yeah, yeah, uh, it must have been very scary on the television. I had the benefit; I was one of the few people who could see the fireworks right kind of over the far stand. Okay, um, so yeah, that was fireworks. Uh, Emmy Martinez shouting, "David, David, where the fuck are you going?" At David Luiz <laughs> when he tried to go up for a corner. Really late uh, in the game, was it? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like David and Rob Holding were looking to go up for a corner and Harry Martinez was not a happy boy about it. Very, very pleasingly and very vocally. Where the um, fuck are you going? Brilliant. I love that. <laughs> I also enjoyed Mikel Arteta's version of fucking hell, which has a really specific pronunciation where he, I forget what the instant was that caused him to shout it, but he, he just went, fucking hell. Like that. <laughs> it was very much fucking with an O. There were so many things. From the very start of the game, in fact, there was a really funny moment. I mean, the the guard of honour, which played to sort of silence and like, you know, just like you could yeah. hear the individual claps of the Arsenal players. I found that funny. When they played the Premier League anthem, uh, which they did when the players did the handshake, it was like all this big dramatic music. Here we go. The game's about to start. You almost felt like you could hear the crowd's roar. And then it cut out and all you could hear was just a seagull going, <laughs> just like echoing around an empty stadium. It was very, very funny. Oh my God. I have to say there was some funny bits um, when you look back at some of the footage as well. Uh, I was going to do this a little bit later and we'll talk about the goals obviously, but uh, I think we should throw this in now seeing as we're on the funny bits moment. I, uh, after uh, games, I download them. I find them on the internet Mm. and I download them and I watch, you know, I don't watch uh, the entire game again because you know I just don't have time for that and I leave it to those strange people on the Arsenal Vision podcast who you know mm. who do that sit there and watch an entire game again weirdos anyway I I I try and get um, a Spanish language version of the game so I can use perhaps one of the snippets for for the commentary you know a little bit of the sure. in the intro and this really made me laugh when I was watching back because I thought, oh, you know what, Lacazette scored and obviously Reese Nelson scored and we haven't had a Reese Nelson bid in the in the intro because you know he hasn't scored a Premier League goal for us. Anyway, this is what they sounded like when Lacazette scored. Uh, this is the clip that happens. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Okay, yeah, That's so fairly, fairly standard stuff, right? Um, yeah. So I was thinking, wow, when when they make another mistake, another mistake that nobody could countenance Liverpool making, they are going to like go off the charts in terms of sure. how they react to this goal. Have a listen, they're just sort of chatting away and then they mention there's a mistake and you can hear the sound of the ball hitting the back of the net and then see if you can figure out what's funny. Pero esa impotencia, la pelota perdida, casi lo lleva al descontrol. Se equivoca Allison y aprovecha la cassette y va el conjunto Gunner. That's incredible. They start silence. Like Jurgen Klopp on the touchline. Exactly. They start talking about like how, whoa, this is like really strange for a team like Liverpool. You know, there are teams that make mistakes, but this isn't really what they do. And there's just this, the ball hits the back of the net and they are doing the Jurgen Klopp face, just probably looking at each other going, what is happening? They died of shock in that moment (laughs) when Alisson played that pass. I have they to say, expired. I have to say, I think, uh, I, I think Allison obviously played a poor pass. But when you look at what Van Dyke is doing, which is just kind of standing there, for, he forgot for a moment that he's actually in the middle of a game of football. 
Mm. When you look at the it's replays. It's difficult to play football with flip-flops on. That's what we learned last yeah. night. Um, so, the yeah. funniest thing, of course, is probably the stats, right? Yeah. I mean, that that tells the story of the game to an extent. And uh, Not the full story, though, James. Please remember, stats don't tell the full story, though. Anyway. Of, course, of course, of course. But what, 69% possession to Liverpool mm-hmm. I've got in front of me. 24 shots to R3. Three. Three. <laughs> If anything, it's a shame we had a third, isn't it? <laughs> it is. It would have been the second time this season we'd scored two from two. But imagine if Joe, I mean, I assume that third one was Joe Willicks that he, he missed late on. You know, it was a bad miss by, by Joe. But, uh, you know, imagine if we scored that one. We beat Liverpool 3-1, three shots on target, three goals to their just relentless uh, pressure and domination of the game. Um, mm. Yeah. It's it's extremely amusing. Extremely. It is. I mean, to be honest, it, it, it's very Arsenal, what they've done. It, they've really taken a leaf out of our book, I would suggest. Yeah, that is true. That is the kind of game that we've lost in the past, 100%. It is just... <laughs> yeah, definitely. It's one of those, just one of those weird games, isn't it, where, you know, you're, you're very rarely on the right side of a result like this. You know, if you play like that and if the opposition play the way they play... You're very, very rarely on the right side of that result. So, extremely rarely. Yeah, you enjoy know. it when it happens. Oh, for sure, for sure. I mean, I, I you know, I, I enjoyed Mikel Arteta talking afterwards about how he was pleased with the fight and and the spirit and and how you know they were able to match Liverpool from that point of view, if not a quality point of view. And I think we'll talk about that in a minute. I think he does have a bit of a point there in terms of what he got from his players, uh, in terms of a, a defensive rearguard action. Uh, but I've completely forgotten what the point I was going to make uh, is. So let's carry well, on. <laughs> I don't think we should be under any illusions that this is how Mikel Arteta wants to play and even how he wants to approach these big games. No, I, he said that afterwards, didn't he? I think he was asked a question in his press conference afterwards. He was going, is this now how you're going to approach the Man City game? And he said, well, this wasn't really the game plan, uh, you know, that they went out there with. Yeah. Can I ask you what you think the game plan might have been because, look, he rotated a little bit. He had to leave Aubameyang out after, you know, he's played basically every game. We have an FA Cup semi-final coming up at the weekend. You can understand why he left him out. But the setup was a bit strange, wasn't it? And I did see you tweeting about this and talking about, you know, making a little yeah. video about where Lacazette is dropping into midfield and Nelson and Pepe are are, are wide of him and, mm. and all that kind of stuff. It was a strange kind of... Um, system. Um, yeah. do you, can you figure out exactly what he was trying to do? Well, in terms of the shape, he, he was kind of alternating between a back three and a back four. So when when Liverpool were attacking, Kieran Tierney stepped inside. He did this against Southampton as well, Tierney. He played as like the left-sided centre-half with Saka kind of sometimes looking like a left-back, but basically playing as a wing-back. And then when Arsenal had the ball, which was very rare, to be honest with you. So you had to glimpse this in like eight second snatches. But Tierney would kind of file out to left back and it would look more like a four, sort of three, three almost with Mm. Lacazette playing as like a, uh, yeah, like a number 10 and, and Nelson and Pepe as wide attackers. What he was trying to do, I'm not absolutely sure. We played a similar-looking shape at Southampton, and the front three were a little bit in this shape at Spurs. I wondered if... having I saw Pepe in the warm-up 
he was clearly playing through the middle in the warm-up, which is unusual for him. He was playing within the width of the penalty box. Um, I wondered if he'd sort of seen what Unai Emery did at Anfield when Pepe actually had one of his better Arsenal games. He had, we had a front two, didn't we, with a, a quite an effective mm. diamond midfield, but we had a front two. And Pepe ran into the channels uh, and took Van Dijk out of his comfort zone and caused quite a lot of problems to Liverpool. So I thought maybe he's thinking if I release Nelson and Pepe kind of into the channels, that will give us our mm. outlet on the break. To be honest, that didn't happen. And the function of those two, it seemed to me, was was as pressing agents, you know. It was yeah. just to close down. It became that anyway. And every game we talk about what we can hear Mikel Arteta say. I was lucky I could hear pr- pretty much everything he said yesterday. And Reese, Reese, go. Reese, run. Reese, now. Reese was very much the order of the day. I actually felt really sorry. It was Reese Nelson and then Joe Willock when he came on. Yeah. Clearly, there were players in each game who Arteta's like, today I need you to basically just run until you have absolutely nothing left. Yeah. And that was Reese Nelson yesterday. And he absolutely got his reward for it. Sure. But it is a thankless, thankless task. Yeah, it was a bit odd, wasn't it, seeing Pepe on the left-hand side? Um, And look, you know, I've seen people talk about how ineffective he was out there. And I think that's, you know, not an unreasonable comment to make. But based on... Did he get the ball, though? Did he? Not much. I think he had... uh, I think he received, I had the stats here a second ago, he maybe received 12 or 15 passes, something like that. Mm. Um, Because I saw criticism of Pepe and I saw a lot of, 16, I saw a lot of criticism of Reese Nelson before his goal actually as well. People say he's not doing anything and it's like, I felt really sorry for those two guys. Their job was basically to chase stuff in, you know, whether that was the plan or not, that was very quickly what it became. And I actually think Nelson actually did tremendously well in that respect. I thought, you know, we'll see that on the goals. He he got his reward. But it was a strange old shape. And uh, I think the way the game developed, it quickly became clear what this was going to need to be for Arsenal. And they were going to need to ride their luck to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. Um, And they did. I mean, weirdly, I think the XG is sort of relatively favourable to us. It's closer than the the actual sort of shots, if you see what I mean. There's a lot of volume, but maybe not great volume of very good chances. Yeah, I saw that doing the rounds last night and I was a bit... (laughs) I I mean, listen... laughing a bit. I think, yeah, we can only infer so much from that. I mean, this is a weird game because we beat a big team, Mm. hooray. But at the same time, it was absolutely clear how far away we are from that big team. Oh, sure. We beat a big team looking like a cup minnow. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was... Yeah, it's not the kind of performance that you can replicate and say this is a blueprint for <laughs> for how we can approach these big games. I mean, I thought the way Liverpool, I mean, they're just so good. They're so well organized. They're a team that really, really is cohesive. They know each other very well. They know the system very well, what the manager wants. Um, you know, and from very early on, it was clear that the extra man they had in midfield was um, a problem for us. Uh, our central defenders just had no outlet, really. Um, mm. They went back to the goalkeeper a bit or they went long. David Luiz was whacking long balls. Rob Holding was whacking long balls. Martinez as well. Uh, Amy Martinez was, was whacking long balls. Um, and 
you know, we were really struggling from a, a possession point of view. I, I wonder sometimes if Andy Robertson is or has the power to make himself invisible in the sense that nobody seems to see him and then all of a sudden he's in 30 yards of space on the left-hand side. Uh, you know, well, we the- have to remember Cedric Suarez was trying to climb inside one of the Liverpool players at this point or something, wasn't he? He charged out and ran into, was it Robertson himself? I can't remember. I'll, uh, I'll get it again here. Uh, for their goal, you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. He, he he basically ran up and challenged Robertson for a header, ended up just sort of banging into him and winding himself, I think. Yeah, couldn't get and back so then. <laughs> there was, he, he was like hobbling back. Uh, and then, yeah, there was plenty of space for Firmino dropped out there. And Robertson, I mean, when Liverpool scored that goal 20 minutes in, the ease with which they took us apart, led me to believe this is going to be four or five. <laughs> yes, I, I thought it might be the first of many, to be honest. Um, I, I don't know what uh, our defenders were really doing in, in that scenario there. I'm just watching it back here. Um, I Mart- don't think anyone covers themselves in glory, Martinez clears it, and here goes Cedric. Yeah. He doesn't even get near the ball. Now he's fucked. <laughs> he can't get back. Robertson keeps running. Um, holding doesn't go across. Louise is like, oh, ball, ball. Uh, and then it comes in and Xhaka is bypassed. Tierney has two men to deal with and it's a tap in. I thought, oh shit, well, here we go. Uh, <laughs> here yeah, we go. I think we all did. Yeah. Because they, they didn't look massively switched off at that point, Liverpool, I would say. Um, and Klopp seemed pretty happy with how it was going on the touchline at that, but it was well before the open-mouthed, aghast mm. look he had later in the game. Uh, and we... We looked like a side who'd made five changes and didn't necessarily even have our strongest 11 out there at that point. Or, you know, uh, a side that really believed it might be able to do something in, in yeah. this game because of because of the way that, that Liverpool were playing. I'm watching their goal now. Pass back to, to Van Dijk. Bit of pressure from Reese Nelson, which is not bad. Miss kicks it. You know, I think we have, you know, we've been uh, a little bit critical maybe of Alexandra Lacazette in recent weeks, uh, and I don't think that's been completely incorrect. But I think he deserves credit tonight or, or this morning on, on this show. Yeah. For being absolutely on his toes at exactly the right moment. You know, mm. the, they were opportunistic goals that we scored, um, but they uh, and they came from Liverpool making mistakes. But it was also important that we played a part in in capitalising on those mistakes. So for the first one, you know, he was reading it, he was there, he saw the the mistake, nipped in, put the ball past uh, Allison, and for the second one. Uh, again, he's he's looking for a mistake from the goalkeeper when he plays the ball out. If there's a problem, you know, he might be able to nip in and, and take that ball. So, you know, he deserves a lot of credit for, for his part in those two goals. Yeah, uh, and like he, he, he worked really hard, actually, in a, in a sort of unfamiliar role. He was clearly detailed to drop in and pick up a Liverpool midfielder where he could. And I thought he stuck to that remarkably well for someone we think of as a, you know, a centre forward mm. in, in a conventional sense. He was very alert, much more alert than he has been. We've said he's looked heavy-legged. He looked much sharper, I thought, against Liverpool. I don't know what I put that down to. I mean, maybe that is confidence. His goal-scoring record in the last few games isn't too shabby. Um, and he probably should have had an assist at Spurs as well. He set up a Bamiang for the chance that hit the bar. Mm. An assist and a goal for him against Liverpool. He is being much more productive. So, 
Look, that is encouraging. There's a few games left in the season and for very obvious reasons, we need to squeeze everything we can out of them. So whatever happens with him, it's good to see him faring a bit better. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So we go in 2-1 up at halftime. Nobody really expects mm. that. Um, nice finish from Nelson, by the way, I thought as well. Like it, Yeah. He, he could have given it to Pepe, who was there for the little side pass, but he took it on very confidently. Mm. No celebration, very nonchalant. I enjoyed that. Yeah, I mean, I guess maybe the circumstances and the fact there's no crowd plays a part in that. But I I enjoyed that as well. I like the, I like a bit of minimalism in my celebrations, you know, for goals that Mm. come just before halftime against champions who are playing you off the park. You know, you're not going to run around with your shirt over your head because you could easily just look like a chump if stuff happens in the second half. How did you feel at halftime? Were you like, I was amused. Can we end the game there? (laughs) Look, I, I thought we've been the beneficiary of of some sloppy Liverpool play. I fully expected Liverpool to score in in the second half. Um, mm. You know, to the point where it was quite late in the game, where I was actually a bit like, "Ooh, ooh, maybe, maybe we can hang on here." Uh, because they did have some good chances in that second half. I think there was one for Salah in particular at the back post, which. Um, which was really good. There was that one as well where he just left David Luiz on his arse with a little drag back and and didn't quite get the shot off as well as he would like. Uh, Martinez made a save as well. But, you know, just the the, the quality of, of the Liverpool front three, the... Uh, the the possession, the domination, the the confidence with which they play, the frequency and regularity with which they score goals, it just seemed inevitable to me that they would that they would get another goal, and it didn't turn out that way. So let's just sort of quickly talk about a couple of things. One, um, let's go back and have a funny moment because I enjoyed that uh, Rob holding on Sadio Mane thing right towards yeah. uh, the end. I think it could have been before the first goal. Um, uh, that was funny. I really I really liked that. I, I don't quite know how that was given as a free kick to us because he did seem to clatter him. I know there was a kick out or whatever from he Mane. He kicks out after, sort yeah. of in Vieira against Van Nistelrooy fashion. But yeah. Uh, yeah, it was great. It was a kind of a reprise of his Diego Costa moment, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that. I like that about holding. Um, the other thing, uh, just quickly, people will want us to talk about was the Alexander-Arnold foul on Saka. Of course. You said, uh, you tweeted about this and said that it had a horrible sound. It did. It did. It, honestly, it, you don't hear fouls very often in the Premier League. Um because of the crowd, obviously. Mm. But on that occasion, it was a horrible sort of cracking noise. And, you know, very possibly that's the sound of plastic on plastic, of boot on shin pad, for example. But it was one of those that kind of made me intake my breath and my stomach slightly Mm. turn, partly because it was Bukayo Saka in there, who is our most precious, precious gem. Um, And, yeah, it was just a, a really nasty collision that could have had pretty serious consequences for Bukayo Saka. And I absolutely don't understand. I mean, I wasn't watching the television pictures, but was that checked at all? Or No, apparently not. Apparently not. It didn't go right. too far. Um, I mean, they, they talk all the time about how every decision is being uh, looked at by VAR at all times. It's like the eye in the sky, the fucking the crap eye of Sauron uh, looking at, at whatever's happening on the pitch, you know? 
Um, but there wasn't a check. There wasn't like an official VAR check. I think they very quickly decided that that was a yellow card and the referee had got it right. I mean, there were very obvious similarities to uh, to the Eddie and Kedia one. Mikel Arteta was asked about it afterwards and he just said, that's part of football. So um, I don't know. If I, think, I think, yeah, I think Arteta uh, probably feels the same about Nketiah incident. You know, mm. when, when he was sent off, when Nketiah was sent off, Arteta's issue was not that he had been sent off. It was that someone else hadn't been for a similar challenge. And I think it's mm. purely that. It's the consistency element. I mean, he couldn't have had a better view of it, Arteta. It happened literally. Yeah, I saw you can see him on the TV, uh, the pictures. Right. He's just like throws his arm up and is like, what? But, what? but I, do, I do think that I would have been very interested to see if you'd shown the referee a slow motion replay of that on a monitor at pitch side. Yeah. Would he have made the same decision? Yeah, and there was one a little bit later in the game when Shaka got booked, and it looked like, to me anyway, that, that Shaka got the ball. Um, but mm. they went in and they had a check on that, and they showed some replays, and again, fairly quickly decided the yellow was all right. But I just wonder what is the... What's the the rule or the... the um, What's the word I'm looking for here? But why 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 are they looking at the Shaka one and not the Alexander Arnold one? Yeah, what makes them different? Uh, you know, I, I, yeah, I have no idea, and I think maybe it's to do with kind of the severity of the player's reaction. Maybe that influences it. I do think these kinds of soft factors can. Well, Saka was lying on the ground, going out. Yeah, true. You know, true. I don't know. Anyway, look. Let's not go it is a weird one, and I yeah. don't think Trent Alexander-Arnold went into that thinking, ah, now I will break Saka's leg. No, he didn't. But it was just, it was it was like the Nketiah one. He, he went to play the ball, he exactly. mistimed it, he caught the man. Um, there you go. I don't know, one, one, one week it's, it's a red it's, card, another week it's not. So. It is a problem, and I do think they need to try and find more consistency there. Yeah, right. So Mikel Arteta, after the game, talked about his players and he talked about what what, what he got from them. Uh, and he acknowledged that there is a big gap between Arsenal and Liverpool in terms of overall quality of the squad. That is something that I think anybody who watched the game last night will see. Anybody who's watched mm. football this season can see. Um, but what did he say here? He said, the gap uh, in many areas, we cannot improve it uh, in two months. He's talking about the quality, the difference in the teams. He says, the gap is enormous. He said, but the gap between the accountability, the energy, the commitment, the fight of the two teams is now equal. Before, it wasn't like this. I'm very proud of that. The rest will take some time, but at least that we've got it now. My message to the players is that with this, we can create something. And, you know, Liverpool clearly dominated that second period. But I think the Arsenal defenders deserve some credit for the way that they played in that second half. You know, there were some scrambles in the box and there were guys throwing themselves in front of shots. Granite Xhaka, you know, who's not a defender... Uh, midfielder, he blocked three shots. Yeah. You know, um, Holding had two blocked shots. Louise had two blocked shots. Tierney blocked a shot. They all made lots of clearances between them. Um, you know, so the defensive commitment, I mean, when you're being played off the park like that, when you're being absolutely hammered uh, by a better team, the only thing really that you control is is how much commitment you put into your defending, how organized you are, you know, how how compact you stay. You know, Liverpool had 
moments, but they didn't sort of open us up in the way that they did in the first half of the for the Mane goal, you know? Mm. So I think for all the bits and pieces that we've been laughing at and the 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 stuff that's funny about this result, I do think that that's worth pointing out that that without that effort and that commitment defensively from the players, we wouldn't have had that result. Very true. And isn't it amazing what is possible when you don't make huge individual yeah. fuck-ups. I mean, as it happens, we did make one. Emmy Martinez made it in the first half. Another very funny moment in the game where he mm. kicked the ball straight against Liverpool Yikes. forward and it could well have gone mm-hmm. in. And that would have been a real shame for him, you know, and that's how fine the margins can be because I think he was voted man of the match in the end um, by the Arsenal fans. So I think you're right to commend the defenders on that. You know, they, they didn't, with the exception of that moment, make any horrendous errors they were relatively calm I think there's lots of interesting contributing factors there I mean I do wonder if there'd been fans in the stadium would there have been more of that sense of you know nerves and panic you never know sometimes I feel like there's kind of a synchronicity to that that, that, that players and fans can sometimes make each other edgy um, yeah but, then, sort of but then also fans if, if they see a you know a scramble in the they box rally. and someone someone like throws themselves in front of it to make a block you know that can that can energize the team as yeah. well you know it's true it works both ways yeah. now, one thing that I do think is interesting is that Mikel Arteta is is vocally coaching this team at times and I think that does help them in some instances. I mean, he was talking to Louise, talking to Willock, and you could see them respond in real time. So you couldn't ordinarily do that in this sort of fixture. But there was something really interesting that seemed to happen where kind of in the first 20 minutes of the second half, I felt like Arsenal were playing a little bit with that edge of like, well, you know, uh, and maybe it's just my perception as a fan, I'll admit that. But, you know, this is still kind of a free hit. Anything could happen here. Arsenal expected to lose this game. When it got to sort of the drinks break, about 70th minute or so, Mm. the body language and the behaviour of the players and particularly the staff in front of me changed. And suddenly Arteta's coaches were up on their feet every time the ball came in the box, shouting things. Suddenly, the substitutes, people like Hector Bellerin, were shouting encouragement, giving guidance from the sidelines. And it's like everybody who was part of that Arsenal setup sensed, we might actually do this. And if we do, there is a value to that. Sure. Because Arteta's absolutely right. I mean, yes, there's a value in terms of our league position. Yes, there's a value in terms of confidence and all those things. But... What he's saying about the commitment, the attitude, the work that they've put in, in order to convince people to do those things, you have to win games. Yeah, 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 for sure. As, like a, the, as a coach, when you say, if you do this, they'll get results, and it never happens, players give up on that. Yeah. They give up on it very, very quickly. But if they see, well, look, we did that work, we put ourselves through that pain, we went that extra mile, we beat the champions of England... Suddenly, Arteta's authority in that dressing room, his credibility among the players, their willingness to learn from him and listen to him, it all goes up. Yeah. I mean, what was it he said earlier in the season? Something about, 
if we suffer together, we can achieve things or we can win games if we suffer together. Mm. And make no mistake, that would have been a Herculean effort for some of those players last night on a physical level after all the football we've played in, in recent uh, weeks. Uh, I think Tierney has played in every game. Uh, you know, he hasn't always played the 90 minutes. Yeah, I'm not David Luiz's biggest fan by any stretch of the imagination, but he has played a lot in recent weeks and he is also mm. 33 years of age. Um, you know, Shaka. The, the, Shaka, exactly as well. I mean, he looked tired at times, but put it in. Um, you know, you, you, you mentioned already Reese Nelson, when he made the changes that he made, when he brought Ceballos on, when he brought Aubameyang on, I was thinking, oh, he's going to play Aubameyang in the middle and use him as kind of an outlet. Maybe we can mm. stick him over the top. Instead, we had this another strange sort of setup where, where Joe Willock was playing as a false nine. Um, with little or no hope of ever getting the ball, but his job was basically to run back and forth and across the lines, um, you know, to try and, and put some pressure on Liverpool. Aubameyang was on the right. He, he eventually came over to the left. You know, they suffered in that second half. And you're right to point out the fact that, you know, if you suffer and you, you achieve something and you get a good result, those legs don't feel half as heavy than they do... Um, you know, if, if something like, um, you know, Brighton happens or Spurs happens where you've, you've played nominally all right, but you get the stuffing knocked out of you, you know? So I think, yeah. I think it's, it's, it's a, it's a good point to make that, that if you ask players to do hard work for you and that hard work is rewarded, um, that they'll believe, uh, they'll believe it's worthwhile. And nobody is bigger than that. You know, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, the best player at this club, the club captain, he has to come on as a sub and close the game out doing, uh, you know, not a preferred role, not a glamorous role. And that's the way Arteta manages the club. And, yeah, look, I mean, I don't want to go overboard because we Mm. are miles away. We are absolutely miles away. In fairness to Mikel Arteta, he comes out in his post-match interview and he says, I've done nothing yet. Uh, and he says the gap is enormous. Yeah. But I th- but last night worked perfectly for the manager because he got the three points and he got the win. But at the same time, his point about the gap between these two clubs and the gap Arsenal must close if mm. they're serious about competing for things again was also made. Yes. So, it, you know, there's a way in which his point could have been made if Arsenal got battered. You know, I suspect what Mikel, and we'll come on to it. I, I, yeah, I, we'll do it in part two of questions, but yeah, just go but for it. What, yeah, but what Mikel Arteta said about transfers and about budget, I strongly suspect he would have said that whatever the outcome was last night. Because if Arsenal were beaten, he's got an excuse to say it. But for Arsenal to win, it makes it even more valuable for him to say it because his stock is that little bit higher. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and he's, he's sort of saying, look... I'm the good thing you've got going for you. I'm sort of the hot young thing at Arsenal, the bright new coach. And this, yeah, he's, yeah. he does look well, I think, actually, by the way. Hubba great hubba. skin, Mikel Arteta. <laughs> but, uh, and great hair, of course. Of course. Like I saying. Good teeth, I've noticed. You've got to look good as a Premier League manager these days. Yeah, yeah, They're yeah. They're all doing it. Mm. It's part of the brand. But, Anyway, he, he he knows that he has a value and yep. he's trying to leverage that value. For we'll sure. come on to that. But that, that, to me, was like, I was on a, such a high after the game and I was kind of, it was so funny what happened in the match that I just couldn't really believe it. And then I saw that Sky interview he gave and everything just changed on a sixpence and I thought, here we fucking 
Got it. All right. We will deal with that in part two because I've got questions about it and there are some issues, of course, that we will deal with. And another thing that we'll deal with in part two is Emmy Martinez. But yes. I think we need to give him some credit in part one of the show because right at the death, right at the death, he produced an outstanding save. That's incredible. Genuinely outstanding save, which uh, at first I didn't realize how good it was. And then no. they, you know, because I think they got a corner and they took the they corner did. quite quickly. And then they only showed the replay after that second corner was half cleared. I think Tierney got fouled and there was a gap in play and they showed it again. Alexander Arnold with a shot that deflected, you know, I think when it's your night, it's your night. You know, another night that that flies beyond the goalkeeper or maybe it, it rises an extra couple of inches and goes into the top corner, uh, which isn't to take anything away from the save that Emmy Martinez made. But it was fucking brilliant, a brilliant save. And imagine how different we would feel this morning, however we might be able to rationalize it, however we might be able to say, well, on the balance of the game, Liverpool probably deserves something, blah, blah, blah. You'd still feel absolutely gutted that a goal went in at that point. And, you know, having played behind a defense which was under the cosh, uh, you know, 95 minutes in to have that level of concentration, awareness, anticipation, agility. Uh, it was fucking brilliant. One of the best saves I've seen in a long time. It was. and Because it, it wasn't just a shot straight at him, was it? It ricocheted. It deflected, yeah. A defender. yeah. And it comes down, it bounces. He's got to change his flight. I mean, that still of him palming the ball away, he is horizontal, you know. It is proper mm. Superman stuff. Uh, and a shame it happened when it did in the game because I think it did sort of not get the, the love it deserves. So, yeah, very, very happy to give him his props for that. All right. Well, look, well done to him. Um, well done to the people who are angle grinding in the background there over the, the final part of this show <laughs> or this half. But we will take a break here and we're going to come back with your questions and more in part two right after this. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. 
Welcome back to this extra, Arscast Extra. This is part two of the show where we answer questions that you send to us on Twitter at GunnarBlog and at ArsBlog on the ArsBlog Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash the ArsBlog and also on the ArsBlog Discord chat server, which you get access to if you are an ArsBlog member on Patreon. There's a lot of questions about many of the same topics or two big topics here. One of them is Emmy Martinez and the other one are, is uh, is money and recruitment and Mikel Arteta's comments about recruitment. And I just want to, before I ask you a question, read these out a little bit, James, for anyone who hasn't heard them or read them. He was asked on Sky Sports News last night, you know, is money a big concern um, and is the job, you know, that he has, uh, you know, is it a big one? He says that the job is massive. The gap is enormous. Whether a lack of money is concerning, it is a big concern. You know, you have to see how they build those squads. There is no magic. You need to improve the squad with quality, quality players and you need bigger squads to compete in this competition. That's the challenge. He said, I think it's very clear that we need to strengthen our squad. This, I think it's fair to say, has been a running theme. You know, Mm -hmm. saying it last night on Sky was perhaps the most public um, utterance with yeah. regards to squad building, but it is definitely not the first time that he has said it. And I can go back and we've got it on the, the archives on Arsblog News. He has been saying this for some weeks now, that in order to improve, in order to make progress, we have to invest in the squad. That's mm. basically been his message. And it's a message that he is transmitting, I think, to fans. He's transmitting it to his players, but he's definitely transmitting it to those on high, to the football executive committee and to the ownership. So the first question that I have on this, and it's sort of, it's such a broad topic. I don't know that we need a very specific question, but, um, not Gooner, who's at knots underscore Gooner says, what do you think the board make of our Teda's constant chat around money and investment? <laughs> I'm sure it's, they consider it far from ideal. I'm sure. Uh, Arsenal are not accustomed to having managers do this, are they? I mean, Arsene Wenger was incredibly discreet for 20 years and I think protected the people above him from criticism at times. Uh, Unai Emery, I don't think, had the vocabulary in, in, in the nicest possible way to make this point. Even I think he did almost go there on one or two occasions. He did, yeah. Um, but it's been a bit more after the horse has bolted, you know. He... Uh, he was a bit more, you know, when he, after he left, he said, oh, I wanted this player, I got that player, I wanted this, I got that. But I do remember it, him talking about how we needed to improve our central defensive options. We needed to go out and buy a centre half when Rob Holding picked up his injury. Yes, I think I he was quite that. clear about saying we need a central defender. Um, so we went out and got him Dennis Suarez, think, which, yeah, you know, he it, plays a part in that as well, obviously, but... Yeah, and I think he he backed down from that comment weirdly, like a week or so later, almost as if he'd been told, oh, that's not going to happen, mate. Um, but I love this from Arteta. I think this is exactly the right kind of friction. I think that's what you need. I think mm. competitive, successful environments have people who challenge each other. And Mikel Arteta is so demanding of his players it, it's inevitable, therefore, he should be demanding of his other colleagues, you know, and the people around and above him. And I think it extends all the way to the ownership. Yeah. You know, he is throwing down the gauntlet and saying, this is what we need. Are you prepared to give me what it takes? And I, I think it's, 
it's someone who's absolutely just putting the, the concerns of the team first and foremost. And as head coach for, of Arsenal Football Club, that is his responsibility. Hmm. Uh, do you agree? Uh, absolutely. I, I like it. I mean, I know there's some people who will say, well, maybe he's saying this knowing that there isn't any money. So if there is an investment, he can say, well, look, I, I, I said what I said and, you know, I, I know what we needed. But I think you're right. I think he's demanding. I think he is he is absolutely uh, putting it up to the ownership to sort of back up what they've said as well. I think we, we have to um, we have to remember uh, I'm just trying to find the, the thing here, if I can. Um, basically, when KSE took over 100%, right, in their offer document, they said, you know, their stated ambition was for Arsenal to compete for the biggest trophies in football. That is what they said. Mm. I don't know that anyone could have a problem with that as the stated ambition. You might have a problem with the way that they act in relation to that. Like, are they serious about it, right? You could question whether they're serious about that. And I think what Arteta is doing is he is saying, if that is really what you want, then this is what we need to do to to make it happen. You know, in his press conference before the Liverpool game, he said something, <clears throat> something similar along the lines of, you know, my only objective is for Arsenal to be the best. You know, in order to do that, we have to improve the squad, it's a constant, consistent message. So I, I think it's one that few people can argue with when you look at the squad, when you look at the league table, when you look at the performances, when you look at where we are. How can anyone argue with the assertion that in order to get better, we need better players in the squad? Nobody can. No. And uh, Mikolata may not get what he wants. I mean, I'm not without sympathy for the financial circumstances the club find themselves in. And whatever Arteta was told when he took the job in December, events in March, you know, and the coronavirus problem have dramatically changed uh, the landscape. I I fully, fully recognise that. But he has to go into bat for the sporting ambition of the team. And the club. And I think that that's absolutely the right thing to do. And as fans, well, I, I can only speak for myself. As a fan, I want the head coach to be advocating for this team to do what it needs to be competitive at the top level. That's absolutely what I want. If it doesn't happen, there are reasons. And I think, you know, at this point in time, we can all be rational about that and understand mm. it. But you've got to try. You've got to push. You've got to see how creative people can be, how much they can be prepared to stretch, you know, what kind of uh, liquidity might be able to be created. Every possible avenue, you've got to get down the back of the sofa and find what you can if you're serious about making this team better. Mm. I mean, it's worth uh, pointing out that it doesn't all have to happen in this transfer window. No. Like, this is a process. I think that's something that he said as well, that, that it's a process. It is something that is going to take time. And he said he's prepared to wait yeah. for the right player. I mean, isn't that what we wanted? Yeah, wait for the right player, but we need somebody to come in and, and you know, put things right. There have been so many things that, that fans have complained about and have been right to complain about in terms of recruitment, retention, all of these things when it comes to squad building. 
there is a need to put in place a project now. And, you know, if you're prepared to do that, they take time. And there are going to be ups and downs and bumps in the road, as we've kept saying for, for a little while. But but to even try and bridge the gap with teams like Man City, with teams like Liverpool, you've got to give somebody, A, the resources, and B, the time. And if it's not Mikel Arteta, it's got to be the next guy. And if it's not the next guy, it's going to have to be the next guy. Because nobody's going to come along and make this happen on a shoestring budget. It just will not happen. But you've got Mikel Arteta now. Well, that's, that's my point. Thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, you know, he he has credibility. I think, I think even the most ungenerous of Arsenal fans would suggest he is making a positive impact. Or even if you have concerns about what the team is doing on the field, mm. I think it's very difficult to take issue with what he's doing culturally at the club. He is there now. And yes, he loves this club. And yes, he's got a long-term plan. I can tell you now that in football terms, in the modern era, long-term means about three or four years. Do you know what I mean? Mm. The, the chances that Mikel Arteta is thinking of this as a project that takes any longer than five years are incredibly slim. Mm. So your window of capitalising on having this coach who you believe in, who the squad believe in, who the fans believe in, mm. is relatively narrow. And so you might well look at this window and go, do you know what? We can't do anything. But you can't say we can't do anything for the next three years because you will have blown it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. He'll be on to another project by then, in all likelihood. Yeah. You know, it's it's about, you know, as we've talked before, rebuilding the spine of the team and investing properly in areas of the pitch where we are lacking. And that is, you know, the centre of defence, as we spoke about the other day, you know, the centre of midfield. Um, You know, he has to be backed. He has to be backed. By, by money. And however that money comes, we're, we're not quite sure uh, whether the owners can invest. I mean, uh, I know it's not their modus operandi. I don't expect it to happen, to be perfectly honest. No, and actually, to be clear, nor do I. Right. I don't think Arsenal are going to go out and spend a load of money we're not anticipating this summer. I just think it's absolutely right that Arteta should push for that. Sure, sure. Because, um, you know, how else is it going to get better? Unless, unless there is some backing, you know. That's it, and and, and the longer we don't do this, yeah. the harder it gets. Well, he did say as well. That I think one of the interesting things he said before the game was, uh, he was asked like, the longer you're out of the Champions League, how much more difficult does it uh, become to get back into? And he said, yeah, of course, it's harder and harder because, you know, other teams are going to invest. Mm-hmm. So that gap, unless you do something to close the gap, you can't just stand still the gap will get bigger because the other teams are are going to invest. And he said, you have to take a risk. You have to take a risk in terms of investment to try and put things right. So I I give you, I'll tell you that I said you one of the problems here. If we had Josh Kroenke here now, I'm sure what he'd say is look at what Arsenal have spent in the last five years. We have invested. The problem is they haven't done it very well. It hasn't been done with, you know, any kind of long-term 
plan or well, strategy, has it? Because there was some like panic buys towards the end of the Wenger era. When you, I'm not saying Aubameyang was a panic buy, but it was a strange decision to spend £60 million on a striker after spending £50 million on a striker six months previously, right? You know, yes. th- that's not cohesive squad building. Mkhitaryan, Alexis, you know, some of the Emery signings, etc., etc., um, if, you, if you listened to um, Arteta's press conference pre-Liverpool, it was very interesting. He was asked about what the job Jürgen Klopp has done there. And he used the word specificity. Mm. He was like, yeah, yeah, look yeah. at the specificity of the players they bought. They had a tactical identity and a plan. And they, I'm paraphrasing, but they absolutely bought the right players to fit that. And that is something you cannot say Arsenal have done. Look at what they spent on Nicola Pepe, £72 million. Pounds. Mm. The coach wanted to play plays on the opposite flank and they spent yeah. the money on Pepe. Now, whatever you think of Pepe and his talent level as a player, that doesn't make sense. And nor does it make sense really to allocate that much of the budget to any one player. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it goes way, way back and it can be done smartly. Arsenal fans, I think, use Liverpool as a club, as a model, maybe a bit too often. But, you know, I have been reading this week, I wrote about it as well, about Jurgen Klopp's first summer. He came in, the club were 10th uh, in October. They finished 8th. Arsenal are probably on course for a similar similar sort of finish, maybe outside Europe. Liverpool were outside Europe too. That summer, they bought in five players. The most expensive was Stadio Mane. He was £34 million. Not a Van Dijk price, not an Allison price. £34 million. Pounds. Mm. They sold a couple of players. They sold Benteke to Crystal Palace. Their net spend was a, a few million pounds. But they recruited incredibly smartly. And they bought players who weren't even good enough for them to win the league, some of them. You know, Wijnaldum and Mane were the successful ones. But there were other guys. Alex Manninger arrived on a free transfer. Loris Karius came in. They weren't good enough to win, win Liverpool the league. But they got them from eighth to fourth. Yeah. It's not an in- and then from there suddenly you got Champions League money. They go and buy Mo Salah, they sell Coutinho. It all kicks off from there. Yeah, then yeah, they yeah. get Van Dijk, then they get Allison. We have to be back in that Champions League to play at that top financial table. But there is money that we can spend smartly to mm. dramatically improve our our league standings, our league position. But we haven't done that for for years. The same summer Liverpool did that. We spent all the 80 million quid on Perez, Shaka and yeah. Staffing. Yeah, I mean, look, the question, I completely agree with you about Arteta. And I completely agree with you about spending smartly. And, the, you know, it is possible to go and get players who can help you, who can be part of the, the rebuilding process, building blocks, if you like. So you make progression and from there you can improve again. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the question or, or the, the worry that I would have is that some of the people who we need to do that work haven't necessarily demonstrated their smarts in the market, if you like, in mm. in the last couple of years. So that's... Well... That's... Yeah. yeah. And critical to Klopp's success at Liverpool, by the way, is the synergy that has existed between him, between Michael Edwards, who was their analytics guy mm. and, and took over as sporting director. <laughs> Not just that, but with FSG. Uh, I forget the name, the, guy, the name of the guy, Gordon, who I think is the president of SF, FSG, who he and Klopp are tight. They mm. strategically lead that club together. We don't know a lot at this point about the critical relationships at Arsenal. And that, that is basically the, 
the trio of Sanyahi, Edu and Arteta. You know, that, that, that the way that this plays out between them mm. and the, the cooperation I, and the, you know what I mean? The singleness yeah. of the idea is crucial. I would be fascinated to know what kind of relationship Arteta is building with Josh Kroenke, with KSE, and what sort of belief they have in him and how that might impact some of the relationships with, with other people. Because I think there's a sort of... At the moment, I think KSE are very... What's the word I'm going to use here? Or how am I going to phrase this? It feels like the 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 lines of communication are quite narrow in that, yeah. you know, Raul Sanyehi is the man through which everything goes uh, and gets back to, to KSE. Um you know what? Listen, if you want to make yourself heard on the other side of the Atlantic, saying something in a television interview is a pretty obvious way to do it. Isn't yeah, it? it is. Yeah, it is. And That's why I'm, I'm I'm curious to see how this this plays out. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, KSC, in in fairness to KSC, I mean they, I think they are listening. That's certainly my understanding. Is that they're not they're not blind to the way Arsenal are being discussed at the moment, what's going on at Arsenal. I think the appointment of Tim Lewis to the board is an indication that there's, uh, you know, eyes on the ground, essentially, in yeah. London. And I think Arteta's rising credibility um, is going to place him in good stead with the ownership. And I know I know there are still sections of the Arsenal support who say, this guy hasn't won anything, he's a novice coach, why are we putting so much stock in him? All I would say is listen to him. If you listen to him and you're not in some way, I challenge you to not in some way be convinced by the way he is communicating. Um, and players have been, players who've won things, players who are, in the case of someone like Aubameyang, you know, one of the best players in the world, have been won over by him. I think it's inevitable to a certain extent mm. that owners are going to feel that appeal too. Um, and it's, it is very, very politically interesting as a move, isn't it, from yeah. Arteta? Uh, and it's a bit of a power play. He's thrown his weight around. He's just beaten the champions. There's not a lot that's good about Arsenal right now. Mikel Arteta is one of those things. He probably knows that. Mm. Um, it's fascinating, and it will be an interesting summer. I think we'd be being unrealistic if we said, well, yes, I mean, Stan will just say, of course, Mikel, whatever you like. I, I, I know, and I, I get that. I don't want this club to bankrupt themselves, you know? I appreciate that. But it will be interesting where they are able to push the boat out for him now. Mm, and how. And how. Um in yeah. terms of in terms of revenue raising and, and things like that. So yeah, look, the transfer window opens on July twenty seventh and it runs until October the fifth. That uh, was the announcement from the Premier League yesterday. Um we're in no doubt what Mikel Arteta wants. You know, not the specifics of it, but but certainly as a broad view of of what he expects from the club and what he needs from the club to to make next season better than this one. And we'll wait and see if that's what he gets. So, um, do you have a question? I've got a question here, yeah, about Emmy Martinez. A lot of people ask sort of variants on this theme. Yeah, um, Mitch, who's at the AFC Franco, says seeing as money is somewhat forbidden at Arsenal, I imagine he means mm. somewhat short. Um, do you think, due to the performances of Emmy Martinez, it's worth selling Leno? 
generating a good amount of cash to focus on other areas of the squad. And I saw other people basically asking the same question. Yeah, we had we had a, like a double team on the Discord from uh, the Nord who said, question, uh, with Emmy's great performances, should we cash in on Leno? Um, we might have to make some hard sales. Leno might just have to be one of them. And uh, JFK underscore 60 says, similar question to the Nord, only mine is in reverse. Should we think about cashing in on Emmy Martinez, given how uh, high his stock has risen since Leno's injury? Um, it's a it's a fascinating um, scenario, isn't it? And not one necessarily that we expected to be dealing with. Um, yeah. I think it's, yeah. I think it's probably too early to start talking about selling Bernd Leno because he's been so good, you know. Martinez has come in and he's done really, really well. And if it creates a a culture of competition between our goalkeepers, I'm fine with it. Um, But I wouldn't advocate the sale of of Leno. Um, Mm. Yeah, that's the thing. We can't forget how good he has been. Yeah. and this is still a relatively small pool of performances we are talking about for yeah. Martinez. Uh, but it is interesting. I mean, our, we've just had a conversation about Arsenal are going to need to raise funds in yeah. different ways. Is, is it, you know, if, you, if you've got a large amount of money for Leno, I mean, I'm not sure there's necessarily a buyer. Do you know what I mean? We're, we're assuming there's a buyer. Yeah. Um, it's, I mean, look, uh, Martinez only has one year left on his contract as well. Uh, as Tokyo Gunnar asks, what is the you know the story with the contract extension for for Emmy Martinez? And a couple of people, I'm sorry, I can't find. Oh yeah, I've got one here from uh, Corey, who's at Den Crasta on Twitter. He says, "Do you think with these string of brilliant performances by Emmy Mar- uh, Martinez, he will want to settle as a second string keeper at Arsenal, or will he leave and be first choice somewhere else?" I mean, uh, you know, we we look. Uh, what Emmy Martinez is doing and we're delighted by it and we, we love it but what it's also doing is putting him in the shop window with 12 months left on his contract he now has and will have plenty of options available to him that weren't available to him three or four weeks ago that's something we, we that, have to contend with months thing by the way because I hadn't heard that I wasn't to say. What, oh, maybe I'm wrong actually maybe Hang on, let me have a look here. Uh, What's transfer marked saying? Um, they say twenty twenty three. Okay, 2022. well then twenty twenty two. But I don't know when his last. Con- he says it says his last contract was signed. It doesn't say actually. Um, I he signed one in twenty sixteen. Hmm. Hmm. I don't know. About I this, thought actually. I read something before uh, before the lockdown started. Let's see. Uh, there's nothing in this. I was pretty sure that it was in the in the Guardian. It could have been from Nick Ames um, mm. about his contract. I'm just going to go on the. Maybe. Yeah, anyway. He will have options available to him anyway. Regardless. I mean, there's, you know, there will be suitors. He can go on and be, uh, and I'll endeavour to find out about the contract situation, but 
to, he, he could want to go and be a number one elsewhere. I mean, he, his whole career, he's spoken about wanting to be number one at Arsenal. And there is part of me that thinks, well, he could end the season as number one at Arsenal and mm. move. Uh, and sort of, in his mind, reconcile that. And he, he did it. And now he's going to go and be number one somewhere else. I'm not in a position yet where I'm thinking Emmy Martinez is better than Bernd Leno. Arsenal should sell Bernd Leno. Right. Are you? Not quite. I mean, I think something Arteta has been saying when he's been asked about uh, Emmy is is that consistency is is really important. If Leno was fit tomorrow, what would happen? That that's a great question, and we've had that a couple of times. Uh, one from the Discord uh, from Hopton three two one who says, "If Leno were ready tomorrow, would you start him?" And on Twitter, we have one from uh, Den who's at La Phantom Dennis who says, uh, "Martinez has earned the right to remain in goal if he maintains this level of performance, even when Leno comes back." I have to say that if Leno was fit tomorrow, I would stick with Emmy Martinez. Just yeah, because made... I feel like he hasn't done anything to lose his place. I mean, there's talk of Leno being back in full training before the end of the season, potentially. You know, he might uh, he might be available for an FA Cup final. You never know. But um, I think it's a really tricky one. It's particularly tricky with goalkeepers, isn't it? Because if an outfield player... You know, if Aubameyang uh, kind of was injured for long term and Martinelli came in and was playing this well, you'd think, well, you've got to find a way to get them both in the team. Mm. I somehow don't think we're going to do that with Leno and Martinez. Um, it reminds me in some ways of, it's a different situation, but, you know, Matthew Debushi was doing quite well at right back and then Hector Bellerin came in and we were like, oh, hang on a minute, this guy kind of looks even better. And I, I can't lie. There are things about Martinez's game that I instinctively prefer mm. to Leno. I just haven't seen it. You know, Leno has played seasons and seasons of first-team football at the highest level in Germany and the highest level in England. We haven't seen that wealth of opportunities with Martinez yet for us to kind of see if it levels out in any kind of way. But yeah. his size, his presence, the way he holds the ball, the way he gathers it into him, He's got very, very soft, safe hands. Um, pretty soft. He must use fairy liquid. He, he must, yeah. I mean, genuinely, it feels like he's got pret stick all over his gloves at times. They just bang. He, he, he keeps stuff close to him. Um, I really, really, really like him as a goalkeeper. He's good on the ball. I uh, Can you keep both? I don't know. I don't know if you can, realistically. You end up in a sort of weird where you have two kind of first-choice goalkeepers or two goalkeepers who want to be first-choice. Does, does, the, does the transfer market dictate this to you? So if someone comes in and says, um, hello, it's Bayern Munich here, we want Bernd Leno, here's 40 or £50 million, pounds, whatever it. it might be, take you, you take that, of right? Of course, yeah. I mean, if you, if you need to... If you have enough, enough faith in Emi Martinez to do the job and that kind of money is on offer, you take it because it allows you to do things that you really need to do. And similarly, if someone comes in for Emmy Martinez for a value that gives you uh, massive profit on a, a massive profit on a player who costs you nothing in terms of transfer fee and who is basically going to be all profit. And who's undoubtedly at the high point of their transfer value. I mean, mm. they've never been worth anything like what they'd be worth now on the open market. Maybe again, 
that is an opportunity that you take. If if we have to kind of allocate mm. our resource more cleverly, you know, I mentioned Alex Manninger turning up at Liverpool that summer. I think he was 36. But, like, it wouldn't be the craziest thing to say, OK, well, let's put our resource into our, our number one, Leno, and then we get in, you know, your Mark Schwarzer, you know, your, your, yeah, yeah. your experienced cover goalkeeper who's definitely cover, who's kind of on the sort of downhill trajectory of their career and we use that resource on a centre-half or whatever else it might be, you know? Well, I mean, isn't that what Liverpool have done this season in terms of um, in terms of their number two? It's that guy who played for West Ham. I don't even know. Oh, it's, Ad- oh yeah, exactly. Adrian. Uh, Adrian, yeah. And, and they've got a they've a got a they've got yeah. a young Irish goalkeeper called uh, Quivin Kelleher as well. They've used him a little bit, so maybe maybe you have to do that. I mean, a, a question slightly linked to this from Liam, who's at Groningooner, who says, "How much uh, credit does uh, Inyaki Pavon deserve for Emmy's performances? This is the new goalkeeping coach that came in with with Mikel Arteta. I mean, do we know what sort of an impact he's had on the training ground?" Well, what we know about him is he's a massive innovator. I know this because I know um, people who work with him at Brentford. And he is not your average goalkeeping coach. Uh, So, you know, uh, he is not traditional in any sense. His methods are um, unusual and he's a bit of a maverick. And he really has a strong athletic focus. And he's meant to be an incredibly intense guy, a little bit like Arteta. He's someone who's incredibly specific about what he demands from his goalkeepers. And there are certain goalkeepers that he will look at and be like, not for me, couldn't work with them. Mm. They have to have certain prerequisites. One is that they have to be extremely good with their feet. Um, You know, I think he has a bit of cynicism about English goalkeepers, for example, because he doesn't think that they generally meet his technical standards. Of course, look, what Leno and Martinez have done, it's not like Leno was bad last season without Iñaki there. But yeah, I think he probably does deserve some credit. And, um, you know, he he's getting very good performances out of these guys. And what's interesting as well is that there's a good relationship there between Martinez and Leno and Matt Macy. As much mm. as there is competition, they want that place. They are also kind of working as a team, as a unit. And I think... Uh, I know that Matt Macy's found it really beneficial to work with Inyaki as well. So, yeah, it, it was an interesting appointment by Arteta because unlike some of the other guys he put on his staff, he didn't have that much direct experience with Inyaki Kana. And he has an agent, Inyaki Kana, which is unusual for a goalkeeping coach. Right. He's represented by Enrique De Lucas, who <laughs> was the uh, was a former Chelsea midfielder, Kike De Lucas, don't you remember him? But, no. So he was always kind of angling for a big job in the Premier League and he had people sort of working on that to help him get there and some people treated that with a bit of cynicism but I think Arteta heard good things about Inaki mm. and thus far it's been a really positive relationship and and I don't I think you'll agree with me when I say that maybe the goalkeeping coaching side of things certainly at times under Arsene Wenger perhaps didn't quite 
get the focus and the attention no. that it, it, it warranted. Yeah, that's very true. That's very true. And we have to remember that Unai Emery brought in his own goalkeeping coach as well. So um, yeah. it has been an area. Just while we're on this, actually, there's another question here from Felix Knapp, who's at Felix underscore Knapp 93. And he said, Sky Germany reported last night that Arteta is likely to add a specific corner and free kick coach to his staff for next season. What are your thoughts on that? It seems like an area we can improve on a lot both defensively and offensively. Hmm, that would be interesting. Juan Carlos, back. (laughs) He's back. He's back on the sidelines. Um, It is an area we can definitely improve, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. I mean, this sort of specialisation in in coaches, I know everyone laughed at Liverpool, you know, when they got a a throw-in coach. But, I mean, it's clearly an area of the game um, which is very important and which you can get some benefit from. If you're 4%, 5% better than you used to be, you can keep possession better. You might have more variety. So, you know, I think this this is an interesting part of coaching now. We know about defensive coaches and goalkeeping coaches and attacking coaches, but but when it comes to the very specifics of games and and tactical um, uh, bits and pieces like that, I think it's a very interesting development. And, you know, I certainly wouldn't have any problem with it if it makes us better. And I wouldn't be surprised to see Arteta expand his staff in some way. He's got that core staff who've been great for him thus far. Mm. But I do wonder if there might be specialisms, like you say, mm. if that specificity he wants from his players might apply to his coaching staff as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, here's a question on the subject of raising funds. Um, now, where is it? I've seen it somewhere. Yes, the carpet at Arsenal Carpet says, question for the pod. How much do you think Ainsley Maitland-Niles is really worth? Type of clubs who take him will likely be affected by COVID-19. And with even with 50 first-team appearances, he's still unproven as a central midfielder. I would be surprised if he's over £15 million. Pounds. Again, we have to wait and see what the market is like. It's worth yeah. remembering that Maitland-Niles has nearly 100 first-team appearances for Arsenal. So, you know, he does have plenty of experience and this is, you know, Premier League experience as well. It's not just Europa League and, and Cup games and things like that. So he has plenty of experience. Look, when you look at Liverpool getting, what did they get? 19 million, 20 million pounds for Solanke who went to Bournemouth after, what, scoring one goal or no goals for Liverpool and barely playing, you would certainly look at someone like Maitland-Niles, who's who's a good player, um, even if he hasn't quite found his position yet, and think he could do a very good job for a lot of Premier League teams. Um, You know, there's even a case to be made that he could do a good job for us uh, if we keep him in the squad. Yeah, I just don't know what... You know, but based on that, you'd be looking at certainly twenty-five million pounds for Ainsley Maitland-Niles. He's English. He's young. He's got years left on his contract. He's lots of experience. He's versatile. All of those things go in his favour. So you'd be looking. You know, in the pre-COVID world, I would have thought something like twenty-five million pounds would have been the minimum that you would expect based on some of the other deals that have gone down in in, in the Premier League. Maybe that sounds high to me personally. But why? I mean, why Why does Solanke, for example, have a higher value? Is it because he is a forward and you're paying that premium for somebody who might be able to get you goals? Yeah, I mean, how much did they pay for Solanke? Bear in mind, he hasn't got the many goals at all, yeah. Yeah, I think it was nearly <laughs> £20 million. Pounds. 17. Right, yeah. so yeah. So, uh, 
I think that I would be uh, well. Even in a even in a pre-COVID world, I I'd be surprised if you fetch more than twenty million for Maisie Maitland-Niles. Maybe I'm being uh, unambitious. It'd be great if someone offered twenty-five or higher. Uh, wow, I would bite not just their hand off, but their entire arm and chew it down. I I think he might end up going closer to what the carp is saying. Yeah, maybe, 50. maybe. But like Solanke's record at Liverpool: twenty-seven appearances, one goal. One assist and a couple of yellow cards. And that yeah. made him a £17 million player. Maybe there is a premium in forwards. Maybe there is that, you know, you're paying for potential uh, goals in, in the Premier League. And they are, of course, more valuable. But um, I, would, I would, like I said, in a pre-COVID world, I'd be looking for something higher. Maybe not quite as high as what uh, the money we got for Iwobi, but certainly north of £20 million. Anything less than wow. twenty million, I would have been unhappy with uh, right. for that. What, well, what we get for him now? No idea. Yeah, I've got no idea either. To be honest, uh, if it is north of twenty million, it, it, Arsenal will be absolutely. I think they'll be delighted with that. Mm. If it's, I think if it's close to twenty, I think they'll be pretty pleased. I mean, I like him. I just, yeah, I think it is partly that thing of maybe not being seen as an attacking player, not not having that glamour attached. But he is, you're right, he's a good age. He's been an England youth international. Um, he's versatile, which has a value. We should definitely try and, and rinse that English premium for every penny that we can. I mean, mm. that is the position that we're in. Um, and also, isn't it pleasing and kind of reassuring to know that a player can know he's going to leave a club and not be a massive dick about it. And the fact that he's kind of still available f- for selection. Do you know what I mean? Like mm. the fact that he and Arteta have clearly found some sort of, I'm not going to call it a truce, but an understanding that he is available. He will do his job for the team. There's a benefit to Maitland-Niles because he's putting himself in the shop window. There's a benefit to the club for the same reason. The fact that it's a relatively healthy breakup. I actually am quite glad and grateful of that. Mm. Yeah, if that's what it comes to, I don't think there'll be any ill will or 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 bitterness or rancor or anything like that in terms of uh, him going or how he's going to go. Mm. Um, but you know, it, it it really depends on what Mikel Arteta thinks of what he needs in his squad next season. So the other thing I, I think we need to remember is, um, you know, we don't know yet what we're going to be doing in terms of Europe. We might not be in Europe. No, therefore, we haven't really talked about that, but but, I mean, I think, what do you think? I mean, qualification via the Premier League is at least possible now. It is. I mean, who have we got left? Watford and Aston Villa, is that it? Yes. Now, the only thing to say is, in theory, those are very easy games, of course, but they... They're scrapping. ...are very much playing for survival. Yeah. So... The teams um, that are above us are Tottenham and Sheffield United. Yeah, Sheffield so, United have a game in hand as well. Do they? Okay, that's not great. So they they have Leicester away tonight. Oh, then God, that means Sheffield. I want Brendan Rodgers to win a game. That's not good. <laughs> then they have... Um, we should probably want him to win anyway because we don't want United in the Champions League, that's for sure. Mm. Um, and then Sheffield United have Everton and Southampton. Oh, uh, they're definitely going to be Everton because Everton are just a fucking mess. 
Um, Spurs have Leicester and Palace. Oh, go Palace. I think we actually need to be backing Leicester in a big mm. way between now and the end of the season. Number one, we don't want any of our rivals to get in the Champions League if it's all possible. Number two, we need them to be Sheffield United and Spurs. Mm. I'm just looking at Wolves, what Wolves got left. Because uh, it's incredibly tight. Wolves are sixth on 56 points. We are ninth on 53. Mm. Um, so who have Wolves but got? we have... Wolves have got uh, Palace and Chelsea. Mm. I mm. mean, if we get six points... 59. We'll very much be in the mix. Our goal difference is not good. It's worth saying. It's mm. worse than both Spurs and Wolves. It's better than Sheffield United. Okay, but I mean, it's ours is plus eight, and their Tottenham and Wolves are plus 11. So it's not... Mm impossible to make that up particularly if we win uh, a couple of games and they draw a couple of games or lose a couple of games if we can you know if we can keep a clean we, sheet we could and have score a, a very couple of dramatic final day yeah yeah let's yeah let's put it like that I mean yeah. it's Watford on the final day who may well be in a relegation fight themselves still at that point is that we home or to... away that's at the Emirates right and is Villa away is it Villa's away on Tuesday that's the right. game in hand so oh, we'll what? have had the FA Cup semi-final Saturday, so you know, I imagine there'll be some rotation for that game. Jesus! And if we get through by some miracle on Saturday, then you've got decisions to make about you know eggs and baskets, haven't you? Mm, Watford have it got feels West like a massive. Ham. Yeah, it does it is? It's a long shot, but at least it's still there. Um, Watford have got West Ham. Um, who else have they got? Man City, shit, and then Arsenal. So, yeah, well, I think West they're going to be scrapping. Game, mm. For obvious reasons, they're 16th, 17th. Yeah, they, they, they're going to lose to Man City, you would think. Uh, and then the final day could be really big. So, hey, at least we've made it interesting. <laughs> you have made it interesting. Uh, just a couple of quick ones to finish. Uh, Luca, who's at Luca underscore AFC, said formation for City, back four, back five. Does it even matter with our defenders? Uh, listen, I know Arteta said this wasn't a rehearsal for City, but I think given how much of the ball we're likely to have, in essence, it kind of was. Um, so we're going to have no ball at all against Man City. I I mean, where where, where do you find the balance between... Yes, yeah, um, I mean, we had this debate after Anfield last year, didn't we, about yeah. sitting off, the dangers of it. Yeah. We, got, we absolutely got away with it last night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, it's like you said, it's not a blueprint. So the chances of that working again are slim, but I'm not sure they're any slimmer than our chances of actually like sort of going and trying to beat them genuinely. Should we not try and compete with them in midfield though? Because, you know, we, we had nothing last night, you know, Liverpool's three against our two, our two were completely um, marked out of the game. Therefore, you know, we couldn't retain any kind of possession. And if we do well, that it was against a back City, four at the Etihad, wasn't it? That's what Arteta started the the restart with. Mm. Um, I do wonder if it will be one of these hybrids where it's like a five out of possession and a four in it. I, I do wonder if that might be how he does it, and that will give them Saka walks on, push up, and be the extra midfielder. Um, Shaka drop back in and be the extra yeah, defender. I, 
Maybe. I, I don't know, but I think it will be, you know, it's very rare that he's like, and this is just the shape, and we just stick with that. Yeah. I, think he'll, I think he'll try and make it clever. I, I feel like, look, I really want to believe we can have an FA Cup final to finish this season desperately. And I thoroughly loved the Liverpool game. I kind of have the punch that that was our one. Do you know what I mean? Well, <laughs> that- we, we can't play like we played against... Liverpool and expect to get through to the FA Cup final. I just have a feeling that it's one of those games where if we don't at least try and take some of the initiative, the 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 game will be set from the first minute. And as soon as they score, that'll probably be that. Because it's unlikely that, that we're going to get the same kind of gifts from City that, that Liverpool gave us, even if City's defenders are maybe, maybe just a bit more, more error-prone, error you know. But I, I don't think you can count on that. I just feel like yeah. in a semi-final, why not? Go with a back four. Let's, let's try and play a bit. Let's try and match them in midfield. You know, we certainly can't match them in terms of quality uh, because of what they've got in there with, with De Bruyne, with Silva, with the other Silva, et cetera, et cetera. But you know, maybe the maybe the little um, trick Arteta might have is to is Pep will think he's going to play with this back three, play with the back four, and see you know if we can at least knock them off their strides from it's the, all from bit the of start. Ruse. Yeah, it's all bit the of long ruse game. Well. It's the long game. <laughs> Right. Uh, do you have one more or will we leave it there? I don't. Right. I'm, uh, oh, do I? Uh, yeah, I do actually have one quick one. Let's have a look at it. Um, ba, 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 ba. Yes, it was from the Discord. It was from George B 1495 And George says, do we now have the evidence we need to say that Arteta will never play Aubameyang at centre-forward? <laughs> um, maybe, maybe. Um, like that he didn't play there last night was really something, wasn't it? When he came mm. on. Mm. It was telling, I think. I mean, I mean, look, look, clearly we know that's not Arteta's ideal. It might happen, but he's had plenty mm. of opportunities to do it. It's clearly not how he sees it. Um, and now watching him start him there against City on Saturday. Maybe there you go. Idiot. You've made it happen. You have made yeah. it happen. You've fulfilled the dreams of many Arsenal fans who want to see him start there. So look... We'll see. But look, uh, folks, we, we better leave it there. Thank you as ever for being here. Thanks for listening. Please give us a review, a rating review on iTunes, on I think Acast will allow, uh, allow you to do reviews now. M- whatever podcast app you use, give us a review. Be nice, please. Please. It all helps. It all helps. Um, we will, of course, be here on Monday with another Arsecast Extra. Uh, I might try and do something tomorrow as well, just a sort of regular Friday Arsecast, uh, depending on what I can get done the rest of this day, or maybe I'll record something tomorrow and have it for you then. Uh, but as ever, thank you for being here, and we will catch you on the next one. Bye-bye. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. 
The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.